Genesis chapter 49. For the last nine weeks, we have been preaching through the blessings that Jacob bestowed upon his sons when he was on his deathbed. And it's been a lengthy journey, but we have seen both God's purpose for the ages and God's working in the life of the believer, as well as in the nation of Israel. We come tonight to the tenth in this line of children and the blessings. And we come to a man by the name of Naphtali. Naphtali, his name means wrestling. He is one of the sons of the handmaids. And he is, we might say, the last in a long succession. The reason I say that is because here in a moment, Jacob is going to bless Joseph and Benjamin. And certainly, in Jacob's mind, Joseph and Benjamin both held a special place. You've heard people say before, you save the best for last. Well, it's almost as though Jacob takes that approach, because even though Joseph and Benjamin were both the youngest two sons of his son, certainly they also held a precious place in his heart. But as he goes through the series of older boys, Naphtali seems to bring up the back of the train, so to speak, and to be the last one that Jacob mentions before moving to Joseph and Benjamin. Verse 21 says this, Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Let's read it once more. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Father, we thank You for this time. We pray that You bless and use these next few moments for Your glory. Lord, if we can glorify You, we've accomplished something tonight. So I pray we lift You up high and holy. Lord, that ere we leave this place, we'd know more of You and love more of You than we did when we came in. Father, we do love You. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have noted as we have studied through this that these blessings that Jacob offers can be understood uh, basically in two schools of thought or applied in two schools of thought. And then there's a third that every portion of Scripture can be applied in. We understand that these can be understood within the dispensational realm. Jacob says to his sons that he wants to tell them what will befall them in the last days. The phrase last days is chock full of prophetic uh, ideas and prophetic truths. We might use the term connotations when we speak of the prophetic element of that phrase. For all through the Word of God, it denotes anything from the times of the Gentiles, very often the days that we're living in, down to the bringing in of the millennial promises. And in this particular case, we believe that it charts for us the history of the nation of Israel, beginning with their uh, liberty from Egyptian bondage, and ending with the culmination of the promises of God in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to take the time to recap. We've got the sermons. You can find them online. You can hear them. But suffice it to say that as you go down through the blessings on the sons, you find a striking image of what the Jews have experienced. We have come now to uh, the, the past three that we have examined, Gad and Asher and Naphtali. As I thought about how would be best to describe the place in which these three prophecies fit, this was the thought that occurred to me I want to share with you. These three boys of Gad and of Asher and of Naphtali present for us a collage image of the Jewish nation in the millennial kingdom. 
I would not necessarily say that they present to us a chronological view, but rather they each present to us characteristics and aspects that we will find in the Jewish nation when the millennial kingdom is a reality upon this earth. Lest you wonder, let me just say again that I believe in a millennial kingdom. I'm a premillennialist. Uh, one preacher said that I'm so premillennial we don't go to the post office. <laughs> I guess if you've got to say it that way, that's fine. But I'm no more premillennial than the Word of God is. Because the Bible teaches us of a literal thousand-year reign in which Christ will sit upon a throne in Jerusalem. That will be the epicenter, the capital of the world, and He will reign a literal kingdom during that thousand years. Now, uh, as you go through the book of Revelation, you'll have no trouble seeing that when you come down to the last few chapters, if you'll read it honestly and, and with an open mind. And I believe that those three boys, the blessings on those three boys, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, present to us a collage of what the Jewish nation will be and how it will appear during the millennial kingdom. Let me give you a short example. The Bible says of Gad that a troop will overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Let me say that for 2,000 years a troop has been overcoming them. Ever since 70 A.D. when Titus burned the temple in Jerusalem to the ground, uh, even until this day that we live, I'm talking about 2016 as we sit here today, one, listen, one of the biggest issues in the presidential debates is who's going to stand with Israel. I believe America will be strong when Israel is strong. Let me say that again. I believe America will be strong when Israel is strong. And when, when she supports Israel, I believe God will bless her and give her favor. And I believe the only reason we have not gone the way of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah thus far, because let me tell you something, America has her fair share of sins. You don't kill 48 million unborn children without getting God's attention. And uh, I believe the only thing that has kept us from the brink of utter destruction has been our love and support of the nation of Israel. I think that's part of the reason that we have, and by the way, we, we have had a president for the last eight years that has been very cold to Israel. Uh, and however you choose whatever strength of language you would seek to use in describing that relationship, that's fine. But I think that nobody can deny that there's been a coldness towards the nation of Israel. And I believe who we elect next, we better pay attention to who loves and supports Israel. Because we very, very well could be voting on who is going to usher in the destruction of our nation if we vote someone in that doesn't love and side with Israel. I think we need to be very cautious in what we do in these next few months for that reason. So for 2,000 years, a troop has been overcoming them. But as the millennial kingdom is ushered in, they have overcome at last. For the King of glory has returned in power and in glory. And He has smitten the armies of the Antichrist and laid low the enemies of God and of Israel. And now they have overcome at last. It pictures them sort of in their triumphant state. Asher presents to us the nation of Israel in their prosperous state during the millennial kingdom. Do you know it would astound you, by the way, to know and to learn how much innovation comes out of the nation of Israel. Even this day, how many things, how, how much of their national budget goes towards science and innovation and development. Do you know that the UN uh, requires that goods coming out of Israel be labeled as Israeli goods for the express purpose of people being able to boycott the nation of Israel from an economic standpoint? That's one of the many thousands of reasons I have a problem with the UN. Somebody say amen to that. But... Uh, 
One of these days, the economic fetters will be taken off the nation of Israel. And they'll no longer be subject to the whims of a Gentile and pagan world. Their king will sit on the throne. And they will economically prosper. And Asher presents that truth to us. When we consider the tribe of Naphtali and the person of Naphtali, I believe we come to a place where God seeks to present to us and portray to us the attitude, the public image of the nation of Israel during the Millennial Kingdom. And I'm not going to preach on that public image tonight. I I think it's worth your time to study it, but that's not what the Lord's laid on my heart tonight. But I believe we certainly will see in the Millennial Kingdom that Israel will be viewed like a hind let loose. A hind is a deer. And though they've been bound with many fetters for many years, we'll see them in the liberty and in the joy that they as a nation will experience when they are finally no longer in the minority in this world politically and culturally and socially and ethnically But their king sits upon the throne and they'll be able... The Bible says that in that day, the same way that people hate the Jews today will be the way they're going to love the Jews when the millennial kingdom is ushered in. And certainly during that time, they won't be a a beaten down and downtrodden group of people. But they will enjoy the liberty that they have in owning Christ as their Messiah. But as I consider this, I can't help but think to myself that they will enjoy that liberty because they will have believed on Jesus Christ. And you and I, as we sit here today, I might say this and suggest this to you, that the same liberty that the nation of Israel will enjoy during the Millennial Kingdom is merely a mirror, merely a a picture, merely an extension of the joy and liberty that you and I should feel in a saved and justified condition. As we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's three things, basically, I want to say to you from this text. It's not a long text, and I've not got a lot of things to say. But I want to remind you for a moment of where you were, of where you are, and of what you ought to be doing in light of where you were and where you are. Think about three things with me tonight, and think about them in your life. I want you to notice, first off, the bound condition of Naphtali that's implied in this text. Now, there's a lot of wonderful things we could say, but isn't it interesting that the very first picture that God gives of Naphtali, He does not give a picture of him in bondage. It is implied that he has been in bondage. Now, I'm not a smart man, uh, but I know that if you let loose of something, you've got to have hold of it first. Somebody say amen to that. I mean, it doesn't take a smart man to understand that for you to break the chains off somebody, the chains have to be on them in the first place. And when the Bible says of Naphtali that he is a hind let loose, there is an implication that prior to this time, he was in bondage and he was bound and he was covered up and tangled up in his life. But now something has happened that has changed his life. Let me just say this before I preach the points I've got. Isn't it good to know that the story of our life doesn't begin with our bondage, it begins with our liberty God doesn't talk about the time when Naphtali was in bondage. He he alludes to it. He implies that he had been. But the story of Naphtali, as God seeks to tell it, it does not begin with despair. It does not begin with bondage. It does not begin with darkness. But it begins with the liberty that God allowed him to have. Let me tell you something. Our life, in as much as it matters, began when we experienced liberty in Jesus Christ. Say, preacher, I've got a lot of dark things in my past. Why are they under the blood of Calvary? 
If they are, your story don't begin with those. Your story begins with Calvary. The preacher, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. There's people in this room made mistakes. Hey, the guy preaching in front of you right now has made mistakes in his life. Uh, what are we doing if we let them weigh ourselves down? You know, there's a lot of folks walking around with guilt, just saddled over their necks like a couple saddlebags. Uh, you know that the Bible says this, that Jesus Christ has purified us through the sprinkling of blood upon our conscience that we might be able uh, to be purged from dead works to serve the living God. Uh, God has looked at all those old works and He said, hey, those don't matter anymore. Those are under the blood of Calvary. Those have been dealt with. You've been purged from those things. Go on and serve God in newness and in joy. God doesn't begin with that story, but I think we can understand and look a little further back and have an idea of what kind of bondage that Naphtali may have experienced. Certainly the Jews have experienced bondage. But every one of us, whether we realized it at the time or not, when we were lost, we were living in bondage. If you go to the New Testament, you'll find several times the word bondage is used. But there was a few of them that caught my attention that I think describe the bondage a lost person is in. Let me share one of you with you. Let me say this, that a lost person is bound by the family of disobedience that he's a part of. Listen to what the Bible says in Second Peter chapter 2. When describing uh, lost individuals, he says, Well, they promise them liberty. They themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome... Of the same is he brought in bondage. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. You know, the lost individual, how many times have you heard someone say that's not saved, well, I've been trying to do better. And they say this, I try and I try and I try. And the implied truth is that they try and they try and they try, but they fail. And they always, a dog always goes back to his vomit and the sow always back to her wallowing. The old nature always seeks to roll around in the filth and and dirt and, and putrefaction of this world. That's not by mistake. That's all a lost person knows. Do you know why? Because he's just doing what is natural to him. What is his nature? He is a child of the devil, the Bible teaches. He is literally of Satan's seed before he's born again. Now listen, I know you look at your loved ones that are lost and you say, well, surely not them. No, that's what the Bible says. uh, Christ said this to the Pharisees, said that uh, as your fathers did so do, ye always said, ye are of your father the devil. A lost individual, he's of the seed of Satan. The carnality, the old man, the flesh, is the product of sin, sickness upon humanity's condition. And the fact is that a lost individual, he may try to do better, but he'll never really do better. He may do some things better, but he'll never do better because he is by nature a sinner. That's all he knows and that's all he can do. We were in bondage to that. And you say, how do you know that, preacher? Because we yielded our members as servants unto it. We lived it. You can go over and over again in the New Testament in Paul's writings when he talks about what we were. And he says several times, he says, such were some of you. And he goes down the line and he lists about every nasty, rotten, filthy, wicked, evil, deceitful, sinful thing a man could do. And then he turns to those that are reading the letter and he says, such were some of you. May have not expressed itself always like that in our lives, but that capacity was within us. Let me say this, inasmuch as the old man is still alive within us, that capacity is still within us. 
That is our nature. But you see, the lost man has no capacity but to do wrong. He may try to do right, but even when he tries to do right, he does it out of the wrong motives and winds up doing wrong anyway. But you know, when you get saved, if the Son make you free, you're free indeed. And now, as a believer, you have a choice. You don't have to serve God. You're free indeed. If you don't want to serve God, nobody can make you serve God. But you understand, when you was lost, you didn't even have the opportunity to serve God. Now, as a child of God, you have a choice in the matter. You can serve God if you want to serve God. The lost individual, he's under bondage by the family of disobedience he lives in. Let me say number two, that a lost person is in bondage by the fear of death. That he experiences every day in life. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2 says in verse 14 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, speaking of Jesus Christ, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The lost individual, listen carefully, if he doesn't fear death, he ought to fear death. Because you understand that a lost person, if you're here tonight, if you're here sitting here in a lost condition, you understand that you're just a few missed heartbeats away from leaving this world and any choice and any chance that you have to choose Jesus Christ. You ought to be terrified of death. If you're here lost tonight, you should be scared of it. It ought to keep you up at night, the thought that something could happen that could bring you out or take you out of this world. But you know, for the child of God, we're not under fear of that anymore. Death is no longer a foe to us, but death has been tamed by our Lord and Savior. He uh, took part of the same, and he through death conquered him that had the power of death, the devil. He literally, listen, uh, he, he uh, descended into the lower parts of the earth, and uh, he, he cracked his crown, he stole his scepter, he strapped him to his chariot wheels and rode home to glory and victory. And now death, which used to be the main uh, contender and the main foe and the main antagonist for the human being, once he places his faith in Christ, death is no longer a foe, but now it's a friend. It's no longer the dominion in his life, but it's a doorway in his life for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we no longer need to fear death in our lives. For precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And He can be precious in our sights too. Now, you've heard people say, you know, I'm anxious to go but not take the next bus. I understand what they mean. And I'm not being ugly when I say I mean, I understand what they mean. But we really have no need to fear death. Because we know that our eternal destiny has been settled by Christ on Calvary. Why would we need to fear death when Him who lives within us has conquered death? Why would we need... Listen, why would death hold any fear for us when we know who stands on the other side of death's door? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's far better, Paul said, to depart and be with Christ. We have no reason to fear, but the lost individual, he can't enjoy that. The lost individual, he ought to fear death. He should be afraid of death. If you're here lost tonight, it ought to keep you up at night. You ought to lay in your bed and tremble at the fear that your heart could quit beating and your lungs quit breathing and you slip from this world to an eternity in hell. But we need no longer to be in that bondage. Let me say number three, not only is he bound by the family of disobedience and by the fear of death, but he is bound by the feebleness of deterioration. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. 
Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, we've got to sort of put this through the right spectrum to understand it. Because we still do experience feebleness. But do you understand that for the lost individual, as his body breaks down, his life breaks down? There's nothing for him after but torment and pain and death and damnation. As his body breaks down, uh, that's part of the reason it's so heartbreaking. Man, you see these athletes and uh, they, they've given their life to this sport and they've, they've abused their bodies and they, they've caused their bodies to do things and to be under such strain and such pressure. Thankfully, a lot of them, I hope that it's true, a lot of them seem to find Christ. But you imagine those that don't as they sit there, sometimes at 40, 50 years old, and their body just ravaged by the career that they've chosen. And that deterioration, they feel old, they feel used up, they feel useless. And there's nothing for them. They, they Listen, they, they burn up all the gasoline in the tank, and they're just waiting for corruption to move in and to steal them away. As a believer, it's not like that. <laughs> As a believer, we know that one of these days we're going to put off this tabernacle. And we know that in as much as it breaks down, listen, this we have this treasure, God says, in earthen vessels. And so if a few cracks are showing, maybe that will just let a little bit more glory shine through. As we get feeble and as we get weak and as our body begins to hurt and begins to break down, we can let it bitter us if we want to, but it could also better us in as much as we begin to look more expectingly to be in homing glory into the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's what it says there. Look at it again closely. It says this. For the creature, who's the creature? That's you and me. The creature was made subject to vanity. Not willingly. We didn't ask for this. We didn't desire this. But who chose it? But by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. God made you to break down. You know why? He don't want you to run forever. Uh, Because he's got a better body waiting for you. He's got a better existence waiting for you. He doesn't want you to live on forever. And who would want to live on forever? Somebody say amen to that. Let me say that we see his bound condition is implied in this passage, but then the story changes. Naphtali is a hind let loose. We see his broken constraints. How did that happen, you reckon, in Naphtali's life? I think it happened in his life the way it happened in ours. Let me tell you why. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalms 29.9. It says, The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calf, and discovereth the forest, and in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. Now, if we carry this analogy, this symbolism through, and God says about Naphtali that Naphtali is a hind let loose, well, how was it that Naphtali was ever born except by the voice of God, which causeth the hinds to calve? You know, the truth is, that's how it is in our life, too. If we have a new birth in our life, if we've been born again, if we've been saved by God's grace, you know how that's happened? It's happened because the voice of the Lord spoke in our lives and we heeded the call of God and we yielded unto Him. And the voice of the Lord has brought about a new birth in our lives. Now, all of a sudden, things have changed. Well, how did they change? I want you to notice three qualities I believe we could attribute to Him. If he's a hind let loose, there's a few things that implies. I, I was seeing one of the things I love about living out in the country. I was walking through the yard the other day, saw six deer uh, walking out through the yard. And five of them got away. And, uh, no, I'm joking. But, man, they're fast, ain't they? Man, if you see them, I mean, they're, they're just, they're fast. They're fast. They ain't as fast as a moving vehicle, some of you all have learned. But, but they're fast, you know. 
And I think about some of the qualities. I'd say that a hind let loose would probably be marked number one by his swiftness. Me and Leah were watching a program the other day. Actually, me, Little and uh, little Man and Leah were, were watching a program the other day. My son is all boy. <laughs> and we were watching something on, on, on Netflix, and it was like animals fighting. And now, all the time, he wants to watch animals fighting. I don't know if that's healthy or not. I like it about him, but, but I don't know if it's healthy. We'll be sitting around, and he'll say, Daddy, watch animals fight, you know. And his eyes get crazy, and he foams at the mouth a little bit. But we were watching this thing, and these two big old buck deers were fighting, and they had locked antlers, right? And, you know, they can die that way. They get them antlers locked up. They don't get them unlocked. I mean, they, you know, they just lay there and stare at each other until they starve to death. And so they're fighting, and they're carrying on, and finally they bust loose, and they get get those things free. And then all of a sudden, one of them, I can't do it. If I could do it, it'd be amazing, but I can't. He swings his leg up and gets his leg caught in his antlers. Now, I don't know how you would personify or picture a bad day, but I'd say that gets pretty close right there. But man, you should have seen him when he got loose. Just took off. If you've ever seen them when they get spooked, man, they take off. And it's like the wind just helps them along. I'd say that a hind is probably marked by his swiftness before anything else. Listen to what it says in James chapter 4 about the life of the believer. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. You know that for the believer, we're passing through this world. We're no longer of this world, though we may be in this world. And there ought to be a swiftness in our mindset. We ought to recognize, we think time will go on forever, but it won't go on forever. You see, we think we're moving through like the tortoise. But if we could see things the way God sees them, we'd probably realize we're moving through like the hind. Time is flying by. One of these days we'll wake up on the other side of death and we'll wake up in glory and look back over our life. And you know what I think one of the first things we're going to think is, boy, that went fast. You say, I don't know about that preacher. Well, could you imagine looking out at all of eternity in front of you and looking backward at this little drop in the bucket, this just little minuscule moment, glimpse, second, twinkling of an eye that our life was, and to think of how we've wasted so much of it. I think a hind is marked by swiftness. We are too, and we ought to live that way. Let me say number two, a hind is marked by strength. Psalms 18, 32, 33 says this, It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds' feet and setteth me upon my high places. If you've ever seen, I was watching another one of these things. We sit around and we watch animals brutalize each other in our house. I don't know what that means. Pray for us. Amen. But we were, uh, we were watching these goats, these big old bighorn sheep. And they'd fight each other. You know, you've seen Ram Tough, right? You've seen it on TV, you know, Ram Tough. And they got like, I don't know, like, like the equivalent of getting hit by one of these rams is like if a, if a 747 ran over you. And, uh, you'd watch these things and they'd, they, they'd rear back and boom, hit their, their horns right into each other. But the thing that astounded me as I watched this was not to watch these two things hitting each other in the head. I mean, you can, you can get around teenagers that all, all you're interested in. The thing that astounded me as I watched it was to see how nimble these things were as they moved in these high places. 
I mean, the strength that was in their legs and in their... I don't know if they got ankles, but whatever the equivalent of an ankle would be for a bighorn sheep. And certainly it's true also of, of any type of sheep, and it would be true of a hind as well. When you watch these animals, it seems as though rocky places are no tough thing for them. High places are no difficult thing for them. Low places are no difficult thing for them. They've got the strength in their body and in their legs that whatever their terrain, they're able to navigate it. And they're able to move about. Man, I think about the believer. I think about what God said to Asher in his uh, blessing through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. said that he'd give Asher shoes of iron and of brass. In other words, God gave them... And by the way, just here in a moment after that, you know what he says? He said, as I day, so shall thy strength be. In other words, what he was telling Asher was this. There's rocky roads up ahead. There's rocky ground you're going to have to cover. But I'll give you the strength and I'll give you the shoes to be able to walk it. Let me say this, and, I, and this isn't my message, but I sure want to preach it. Let, let me just say this, that, you know, the Bible says that uh, talks about the, the feet of those that carry the gospel. Am I right? How beautiful are the feet that carry glad tidings. You might say this, that uh, inasmuch as we can liken the Word of God for shoes that would beautify the feet of those that would carry the truth of the Word of God, let me just say this, that, boy, we've got shoes of iron and of brass for whatever tough roads that we walk through. If we'll shod ourselves with the truth of the Word of God, it, you will find it to be durable and applicable. We won't ever worry about getting traction in whatever our circumstances. Because no matter what we're going through, this book has traction. No matter what you're experiencing, you say, Preacher, I've never met anybody going through what I'm going through. No, but you've got a Savior going through what you've been through. And so you go to His Word and you'll find traction there and a footing there to gain your balance and get your legs underneath you. I believe God gives us strength the way that the hind has strength for the days and for the trials ahead. We don't, you know, and, and, and it's deceiving too, man. You look at them, they're nimbly. They're nimbly. I mean, you, you know, it looks like their legs just going to snap just from standing there. But there's a strength unseen. You see, the way that thing works, if you could see, you don't look at the muscles in the leg. Listen now. You look at the muscles that the leg's attached to. They use... <laughs> they use the whole body to move. They use the whole body to move. We're getting ready to go into revival this week. You know how we're going to get strength for the days ahead? We've got to use the whole body to move. If you just look at one leg, if you just look at one member, if you just look at one part, you may see weakness there, but you've got to remember, you may just be looking at one leg, but there's a whole body behind that leg. And beyond that, there's the head of the body that has the wisdom to know what to do with those muscles and where to apply them and where to give strength to climb those high places. I think strength is one of the things that marks them. But then I'd say this, that stamina is one of the things that, that marks them. When I was uh, watching that little program, I didn't know I was studying when I was watching it. Amen. But sometimes God does that. When I was watching this thing, they were saying that these deers... Sometimes they'll, they will literally, they'll fight each other. These bucks will fight each other until they die of exhaustion. Two and three days sometimes they will fight each other over territory or over a female. And they'll literally, they never give up. They just keep fighting until the fight is done. One of them drops to the ground. Man, what stamina that is. I mean, I, I remember used to when we was a teenager, me and Brother Kerry, we, some, somebody, or we may have bought it for ourselves, but somehow me and Brother Kerry, we wound up with boxing gloves. And uh, I remember we used to gather out in Mom and Dad's garage, and uh, 
You know how when you watch a movie, listen carefully now, when you watch a movie and it's got that first person view of someone fighting, right? And they, they see the fist and it comes right here and there's a noise it makes. It goes, you ever heard that? One of those? And their head goes like that right there. That really happens. It really does. But I got him eventually. I caught him where he slipped on a puddle of oil. I'm glad don't, Dad don't keep his garage too clean because Carrie got that foot on a thing of oil and he went down. And, buddy, I just haymakered him hard as I could. But, I, you know, I think about how much stamina a boxer must have. Because I'll be honest with you, man. I mean, we, we get out there, 30 seconds, I was ready to just collapse. And then I think about the stamina that those deer must have. Two and three days to wrestle and to fight and to quarrel with one another. I'd say they're marked by stamina. And, you know, we don't really feel it all the time. But I believe the believer, if he'll yield on the Lord, can be marked by stamina. This is what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It doesn't say they'll never get tired. It just says they'll renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. We all get weary. If your plan is to never get tired, that's a bad plan. Because you're going to get tired. I'm talking about spiritually tired. You're going to get tired sometimes. That's the reason that the Bible exhorts us to be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. You say, preacher, what do I do? We go to Him that's the strength giver when our strength runs out. And we look to Him for the help we need. That's the only way you're going to have stamina. Uh, if that deer had been out and hadn't eaten anything, hadn't drank anything, and hadn't rested at all, and he went into that battle, he couldn't go two or three days. That's part of the reason it's so important that you find yourself in the house of God where you can eat and where you can drink and where you can fellowship and where you can get the help that you need because you don't know what your day has ahead of you. You may be going into this week and you may think it's smooth sailing, but you may find your antlers locked with the devil before the week's out. You may be fighting for your life for two or three days, so you better be sure you're taking care of yourself spiritually. God will give us the strength and stamina that we need if we'll come to Him. I'd say as we look at Naphtali, we have a picture of his bound condition and of his broken constraints. But then we have an interesting phrase that's used. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Now, there is a uh, practical application of these things to the life of the nation of Israel that I don't believe ought to be overlooked because you don't find a lot of prominent people in the Old Testament from the tribe of Naphtali. Now, most of the New Testament disciples were from the tribe of Naphtali, but in the Old Testament you don't find a lot of prominent people that were from the tribe of Naphtali. But there is one man that rises to prominence that is from the tribe of Naphtali, and he's a man by the name of Barak. Barak is a leader of the tribe of Naphtali in the days when Deborah is the judge over the nation of Israel. And they go to war, and Deborah calls for Barak to lead his men down the mountain into the valley to fight against the invading armies. When you come to the end of that account, God has given the victory. You'll find, I believe it's Judges chapter uh, 4. I don't know that off the top of my head, but I believe it's chapter 4. But if you go to the book of Judges, you'll find the song of Deborah and Barak. And there you'll find the beautiful poetry that God, through His inspiration, uttered through the mouths of Deborah and Barak. I believe there is a practical application of this, but I believe there is a personal application for you and I as well. For you see, the believer is marked by the praise of his lips and by the testimony of his life.
In fact, there's a few things I think are implied here in the way that a believer... You know, it ought to be that when our life is changed, we ought to never run out of stuff to shout about. I mean, we may have days when we don't feel like shouting. I understand that, but that don't mean we've run out of things to shout about. We ought to give forth goodly words in the same way that Nathalie and Barak did. And there's a few ways I think we can do that in the New Testament. I think it's important to note the phrase goodly words. You know what it literally means? It means beautiful words. We have a, a, a phrase or a word that we use in our day today to denote beautiful words that are used or words that are marked for their beauty and their arrangement and in their expression. And it's the idea of poetry. Oftentimes, when a person writes words together that convey a beautiful idea, you might say, well, boy, that's poetry. Certainly in Jewish writing, poetry was not always marked by rhyming, uh, but there were several ways that poetry was expressed in the Old Testament writings. But basically, when we talk about beautiful words, we're talking about the poetry of life. I think, you know, when you look at the life of a believer, there are a few things that I think God uses as poetry to express His goodness to the world. I'd say, number one, that by our lips we ought to convey this. We ought to tell people how good God is. Listen to what the Hebrews writer said in Hebrews thirteen fifteen. By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. Listen, we ought to talk about how good God is all the time. Me and Brother Kerry were laughing. We were looking through uh, through different VBS material. We, we've had to kind of call an audible and do things different. Let me tell you something. When you, when you start looking for King James curriculum in anything, it, it gets to slim pickings. There ain't a lot of companies that do it. And so we were looking around. I got to look in a bunch of different companies. I found this one company that their VBS was Nordic Experience. Let me tell you something. When, when, your, when your VBS is Nordic experience, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Amen? Uh, it, what it probably ought to be is a bunch of terrified women wearing hijabs to keep from being assaulted. Somebody say amen to that. That's the Nordic experience now. But uh, that's not what they were selling. Instead, it's got all these you know, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed little kids on there. But one of, the, one of the things, and they got a snack time each night and everything. And one of the snacks, this is what I said. Or this is what it I didn't say. This is what it said. It said that one of the snacks is, is waffles. And it said this. I'm, I'm not joking, all right? I'm, I, you're going to understand why I'm saying this when I tell you. I, I'm not jo- This is really, I can show you online. It said this, uh, that one of the snacks is waffles because uh, when you have waffles, life is good. And then it said this. It said, <laughs> it said and when life's good, God is good. I, I, you know, I'm not just trying to throw stones. Let me say, I'm a pancake man anyway, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. i got no dog in the fight. It's sad to say that, you know, life's good when you got waffles, and I guess when you got waffles, God is good. But you know the, the dangerous truth they're trying to teach kids is that God's only good when life is good. You know that God's good whether life is good or not. I think we ought to praise God when we feel like it. I think we ought to praise Him especially when we don't feel like it. 
Paul talked about bringing his body under subjection. You know what he said? He said, we fight not as uncertain, not as one that, that buffeteth the air, that swings at the air. In other words, Paul said, this isn't pointless what we're doing. When we deny the flesh, when we deny self, when we bring our body under subjection so that we don't become a castaway and a shipwreck from faith, that's not for no reason. Our flesh is out to deceive and to destroy us. You say, preacher, it don't feel like God's good. Well, that's all the more reason to shout that God is good because that's your flesh trying to tell you that God isn't good and you need to bring that under subjection. I think we ought to with our lips. I think we ought to with our life. I thought this was interesting. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter number 2. He said this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You know me, I'm not big on Hebrew and Greek. The old preacher said, I know a little Hebrew and a little Greek. And he said, the uh, little Hebrew runs a laundromat and the little Greek runs a deli. Amen. But I do think it is interesting that the word that's found there is the Greek word poema. And it's where we get our word poem from. And when God said that we are His workmanship, with poetry being the most expressive form, you know what He's saying? He's saying literally to you and I that you are a project and a, 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 a work that I am doing in this world to express my goodness and grace to the world that's around. Our life is literally God's poetry to this dark and discouraging world. When people see our life, they ought to see the signature of God, just like a a handyman puts a signature on a piece of his work. They ought to see God in our lives. I think one of the ways that we can give forth goodly words, I think one of the ways that we can show forth God's poetry is to live the life that God has called us to. Let me tell you something. You've heard people say before that people don't care how much you know till they know how much that you care. Uh, talk is cheap. You can tell people all you want to tell them. But there's some people in life, it doesn't matter what you say, they're looking to the way you live. And they want to see Christ in it. Say, so what do I do, preacher? We'll show them Christ in the way that you live. I think with our, I think with our life, let me say this and I'm done. I think with our legacy that we ought to give forth goodly words. I thought about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2 when Paul said, Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. You know what he was saying to the Corinthian believers? He was saying this. He was saying, I can sit down and I can write all of the letters out. I, you know, I don't know how much Paul believed and knew and understood that his writings were inspired. I believe sometimes he did. I believe sometimes that God was just moving and working through him, and he may have not even reckoned. We certainly know the Old Testament writers did not always understand that God was speaking inspired truth through them. But I think what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, I could write all the letters I want, but your testimony is the greatest letter that I could write. We might could say this that preachers can preach all the messages they want. I can stand as a pastor of Walridge Baptist Church. I can preach messages all day long. But when you leave these four walls, the greatest message that Walridge ever preaches is the life that you live and the testimony that you have. That's what they see. That's the epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men is the legacy and testimony that we have in this lost and dying world. I wonder what kind of legacy we'll leave our kids, our grandkids. Listen, some of y'all in this room, you ain't got grandkids, but you got, you got, you know, like extra grandkids. <laughs> we got so many kids running around. I was thinking this morning, I was standing there and there was like thousands, thousands of children running around. 
I think it was only two or three, but they moved so fast they looked like thousands, you know. And I was thinking about all the kiddos we've got around. What a blessing that that is. You realize that some of y'all, they, they, and, and they've got mammals and papaws, but a lot of y'all, they look to you and your mammal and papaw too. They look at your life. They see you as a father figure. They see you as a mama figure. They see you as a granddaddy or a grandmama. And they're watching your life to see how you're living and what you're doing. That's true oftentimes not just in the church walls, but outside the church walls. Neighbors that we have, co-workers that we have, people that are watching our life. I wonder what legacy we're going to leave behind for them. I wrote down a few verses. I, I won't share them. I don't feel liberty to. But suffice this to say, that our life is a poem being written and read before this world. And I wonder what it says. If, if, if our life is the kind of poem it ought to be, it doesn't begin with our bondage. It begins with our liberty. It begins in saying that, yes, we were bound, but I don't want to tell you about being bound. I want to tell you about being set free. I don't just want to tell you about the dark days that I once had, but I want to tell you about living in the light of the glorious Son of God, what He did in my life. And I want to tell you it not only with my lips, but with my life and legacy. And I want you to see God in my life.